0: Welcome to the new book, the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Neil Vallely, the author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. In Futilitarianism, Vallely eloquently tells the story of how neoliberalism transformed the relationship between utility maximization and the common good. Drawing on a vast array of contemporary examples from self-help literature and marketing jargon to political speeches and governmental responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, the book demonstrates that in the neoliberal decades, the practice of utility maximization traps us in useless and repetitive behaviors that foreclose the possibility of collective happiness. The book argues that at a time of epic-defining disasters from climate emergencies to deadly pandemics, countering the futility of neoliberal existence is essential to building an egalitarian, sustainable, and hopeful future. Neil Vallely is a political and social theorist based at the University of Otago, New Zealand. His research has appeared in journals such as Rethinking Marxism, Angelicae, and Poetics Today, and magazines including The New Internationalist and Roar. In 2022, he will take up a two-year Rutherford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship at Otago, working on the history of capitalism and migrant detention. An Italian translation of Futilitarianism will be published in March 2022. Neil, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh,
0: I'd like to start our discussion today by asking you what brought you to this project and especially this um, rather unique coinage. That is, why Futilitarianism and
1: why now? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so the, the book, the, the genesis of the book really began in 2000. 2015 2016 i just finished my phd at otago um, you might be able to tell from my accent i'm originally from ireland um and then uh, otago went through a big wave of humanities cuts in 2016 <clears throat> um and so i started thinking at this time around the idea of uselessness around the the uh, around the humanities. Um, and not in the sense that, that other people thought about, which is you know the, the defending the uselessness of the humanities, which you know is is a worthwhile endeavor in itself, but rather thinking about how the humanities have come to be conceived as, as useless. And this then kind the sort of the projects were expanded from there. Um, I started to see that this this idea of uselessness or what eventually I came to find as futility, actually permeates so much of everyday life in the 21st century and has, has become even a, li- a lived experience for many people and so it's become a kind of subjective phenomenon as well and then this took me into thinking about the relationship between utility and futility which led me back into the history of utilitarianism which we might talk a little bit about um, and how that came, I started to see how the history of utilitarianism started to influence um, the rise of neoliberalism um. Uh, but also how forms of um so utility maximization have become central to to actually existing neoliberalism, um and this is where it evolves into what I call utilitarianism. You know the, the where we are forced to kind of maximize utility on an individual level, but in doing so, it actually leads to the worsening of our kind of collective and and um social and economic conditions. Um, and I guess we'll probably get into that in more detail, but that, that's, that was kind of genesis of the idea and of, of the project.
0: So you start um, your book by drawing what I think is a really important distinction between futility and nihilism. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you understand the differences between those two terms? Uh, and also the the different variations on nihilism that you identify uh, in our contemporary culture.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it's really interesting because people have really um, uh, picked up on that distinction that I draw in the in the introduction, and it's only a short um, a short section um, of the introduction, but it but it is a, I think it is an important distinction that I that needs to be made. Um, so, um. For me, I I, I see the distinction between futility and nihilism in quite simple terms, in that uh, nihilism is a kind of end in itself. So it requires a, a taking up of a certain position. And um, so in, in that, I use um, Simon Critchley, the philosopher Simon Critchley's distinction between what he calls passive nihilism and active nihilism. And passive nihilism for him is um, uh, forms of... of meaninglessness that, that manifests in a kind of stepping back from the world. Um, so it could be represented in kind of people just kind of accept that there's a kind of the world is meaninglessness and meaning meaningless and, and kind of just get on with things. And active act of nihilism, which is about trying to destroy the world as it exists to bring in the kind of new one. And he sees that in the form of kind of terrorism or or things like that. But both are driven kind of by a, a kind of overall meaninglessness. Whereas futility for me is a is a more, un, kind of unconscious and insidious process, where even lots of people might feel that they are actually contributing to the world in meaningful ways, um. So that futility actually exists kind of more in a bra- background, and you have to kind of strip it, strip it away to see to see it. Whereas nihilism, I think, can be quite obvious, in, in many um scenarios. So I see futil- futility as the starting point of, of something beyond nihilism. So part of the the, the desire to, to write the book and the desire that the impetus behind the idea of the, the theory of utilitarianism is to try and avoid descending into nihilism um, uh trying to to actually to to expose to show the futility of kind of everyday life in the twenty first century as a means to try and construct something that can actually um move beyond that futility that can actually counter that futility uh, uh, to to build something that doesn't end up in nihilism and that's the kind of the main impetus that i that i draw out in that distinction in in the introduction
0: yeah as you say it's a relatively short this dis- discussion in the book but but I think a lot hinges on, on that distinction, um, which is why I wanted to. Which is why I wanted to bring it up. Um, so let's so let's then talk a little bit about utility. Uh, what's the basic idea here? For I mean, I suspect lots of people in our audience will know, but um, let's uh, let's run through it anyway, and then and then talk about how the idea started to insinuate itself. Into not just our collective consciousness here, but also in terms of our practices in everyday life.
1: Yeah, I think that's really um, that's obviously kind of central to to the book, and um, uh, I think so, so. The concept of utility, I I draw back into the kind of intellectual history of of that term, particularly back to to Benthamite uh, utilitarianism, which is the idea of Jeremy Bentham, the kind of late eighteenth early 19th century um, social reformer and philosopher, English um, social reformer and philosopher, um, and what he calls the principle of utility, um, which is essentially the property of an, uh, of an object that, that produces pleasure over pain. Um, and eventually this idea grew um, into um, interventions by later utilitar- utilitarian thinkers like John Stuart Mill, it grew into the concept of the greatest happiness principle, which I'm sure many people might be aware of, um, which is effectively that the most co- moral course of action is the one that generates the most happiness for the greatest number of people. It's the kind of simple definition of, of kind of mm-hmm. utilitarianism and of the greatest happiness uh, principle. Um, but it's also important that, that utilitarianism is a, kind of, uh, is a, uh, a consequentialist ethics so it's the, the moral, morality is judged by the consequences of an action and not by kind of pre-reflection that occurs before an action takes place. But it's also an aggregate of ethics, um, which is really important in the context of capitalism, and I might touch on that in a minute or two, um, because the, the measurement of utility or of happiness or of pleasure, whatever you call it, takes place at an individual level initially and then is aggregated to the level of the collective so we see this even play out in our kind of societies now, with the logic of kind of statist- statistics or surveys, where the the social whole is constructed entirely through individual inputs. That's very much at the base of of Benthamite utilitarianism, and then Bentham's ideas of utility and subsequent so utilitarian thoughts of utility had a really strong influence on the rise of economic science in the nineteenth century, um, especially classical, neoclassical economists, um. From economists, say, uh, David Ricardo and uh, William Stanley Jevons. Um, in fact, actually, the, um, the editor of, of um, Bentham's collective works, Werner Stark, he draws a direct, direct parallel between Bentham and Ricardo. He calls them mm-hmm. um, flesh of one flesh, blood of one blood, because they share the belief that man is essentially a selfish animal and that it is useless to fight that selfishness. Um. So then, I chart in the opening chapter of the book. I chart the the grounding of uh, this principle of utility and, and the um, influence of utilitarianism on economic science into the twentieth century, and then the emergence of a kind of, uh, of an anti-utilitarian thinking in the wildly contrasting ideas of John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek. who are both vehemently critical of Bentham's ideas from completely different directions so Keynes in many ways tries to retain that kind of collective intention of utilitarianism whereas Hayek has the emphasis on the the idea of society as a collection of, of individual interests so I part of the aim in the book is that the, you know there is a kind of strong uh, discipline now of the intellectual history of uh, of neoliberalism and the kind of opening chapter of the book here is is is. Is to chart a kind of alternative, um, not not a different, because I think the intellectual histories that exist are extremely important. But but the relationship between utilitarianism and neoliberalism hasn't really been charted, and that's that was the kind of the impetus for the the main part of the book. Um, and it's from there that the the examination of um, uh, utilitarianism kind of emerges from the kind of historical foundations built in that opening chapter of the book.
0: So. You go on in in the next chapter to describe this creature called uh, Homo futilitis. Uh so let's talk a little bit about this person and and, and I think especially uh, the community that uh, such a person lives in or uh, creates uh, essentially for themselves
1: yeah yeah think again, this is another thing that people um. Have kind of picked up on that term. It's funny when you write a book, you're never quite sure what are what's going to resonate. Yeah, exactly resonate, and it's often things that kind of surprise mm-hmm. you. Uh, but yeah, so this this creature, this figure, Homo Futilis, is is a, a I mean, in many ways, it's a kind of playful um, conception, um, and and what I kind of describe it a kind of evolution of of the more established kind of Homo Economicus. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of it goes back to to. Uh, human capital theory essentially and this chapter is mainly a, a critique of, of human capital theory and and the kinds of um subjectification that take place as a result of human capital theory so so human capital theory in a very short um, description uh, emerged as a extremely important part of kind of neol- neoliberal economic thinking particularly in the work of someone like gary Becker um, from the chicago school of economics and in a very brief, basic way it, it's essentially seeing the human being, seeing ourselves as a form of capital. So that everything we do is a is a kind of investment in in our human capital. And this logic is often used, you know, to in the kind of I guess in universities in the kind of realm that we work in to, to justify the fact that students should have to pay yeah. pay for their education because um, it's they're making an the investment in their future human capital, um, and it's basically their responsibility whether it's a good investment or a bad investment, um, and therefore education transforms from something like a social right, it's something that citizens should get uh, as as citizens, to something that people invest in in themselves, and they must make the right it they must make the right investment, um, and of course this. Again, which I touch on later in the book, but feeds into the decline of all of the humanities and and things like that. But I can talk about that a bit later if we want to. Sure. Um, and Foucault, Michel Foucault, kind of he he identified this this kind of development within with neoliberal thought, um, and he came up with the the kind of famous kind of catchphrase of um the, we become entrepreneurs of the self, yeah. Um, in the in the neoliberal period, so life therefore becomes this almost kind of permanent commercial project so in that chapter um i spent a bit of time uh doing a kind of close reading of what's quite a theme quite a well-known essay called the brand called you by a business writer called tom peters in the peters. late 90s yep. um and in that book he talks basically and completely um unironic and um ways about how we just kind of an
0: amazing thing to pull off if you think about it. it
1: it is quite incredible and i think that's the scary thing about it it's not that, that <laughs> an essay that an essay like this exists because you can imagine that it exists sure but that the person writing it is so sincere about it <laughs> i think this is kind of <laughs> this um, is terrific yeah exactly yeah and he very unashamedly talks about that we must become kind of head marketers of of me inc and Um, everything we do must be thinking about how we look to other people. And, um, and, and, um, I, I draw a little bit there on, on the kind of German media theorist, Bing Chulhan, who has this idea that, that we are, we are no longer subjects. We have become projects and that we're always reinventing, reinventing ourselves, seeing ourselves as something that needs to be worked on. Um. And actually, this logic of self-branding really encapsulates, I think, that that process. And another quote that I used in that chapter, which I found deeply terrifying, which but which again the person saying it found it kind of said it very sincerely, was from Jeff Bezos, um, who said, "Um, your self-brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room," and this to me is. And this leads into what you're talking about, the idea of community, that, that like, this is such a succinct definition of paranoia. Yeah. Um, and it can only lead, if we're constantly thinking about what people are saying about us when we're not in the room, it can only lead to, to what I call, therefore, a, a paranoid community. Um, so, so a community of, of people who are brands, of self-brands, is always characterized by need uh, and distrust. These are the two kind of things I identify. So one is the need for others to buy into one's brand, but also the distrust that others will or have or have or will continue to buy into that brand Um, because you can never know what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. Absolutely. So it creates this constant need to, to be reinventing yourself, to, tr- to selling yourself essentially. Um. And Wendy Brown, the, the kind of famous theorist of neoliberalism, she makes that point that that under this kind of neoliberal rationality, selling one's souls become kind of quotidian. It's just you know as as um, it's what you uh, do. Yeah, it's the only thing you can do. But it's just um, and it's so it leads to this this very perverted sense of community, um, which I think you touched on in the, in the question and. Um, a community that that is um, defined by by competition and paranoia, um, and it, it's uh, that I, I draw a little bit here on Marx, uh, which he he talks about the kind of illusory community of capitalism, um, where freedom only really exists for the ruling classes, and for Marx, real freedom, real community is where individuals obtain their freedom through their associations with others. But this is really at odds with kind of neoliberal rationality, where freedom is always understood as as freedom from others. Um so what I kind of try to do in that chapter is to lay out the kind of impact that that such a conception of society has on our our individual subjectivities, but also the way that we interact with other people. And this leads to the rise, therefore, of of what I call the kind of homo futilitis, this being who's constantly trying to to sell, sell itself to other people and tra- constantly trying to define itself as different from other people, but in doing so finds itself trapped in this kind of futile endeavor of um, of trying to be seen, of trying to sell oneself and ending up in further debt, ending up doing jobs that they don't want to be doing, ending up doing jobs that are, you know, as David Graeber called bullshit jobs, jobs that have no mm-hmm. social utility and things like that
0: yeah it's interesting I've done some work on the idea of employability and and there's a lot of parallel there um and it's not just a matter of creating this as you said i mean and it's a perfect phrasing of the community of of competition and paranoia but it's also just the sort of sheer exhaustion of it. Yeah, yeah. That, that if you're constantly worried about what other people are saying behind your back, and and as you, and as as you quote that you, you're no longer a subject but a project. It's just you know at some point you, you, the system breaks down just out of sheer overuse.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the and the kind of psychological impact of, of behaving like that, of constantly part of the reason that enables us to be human is to be able to set aside the the the, f- the fact that people are talking about us, that people have <laughs> ideas of us that we don't know. And if we if we keep that front and center for constantly thinking about what people are thinking about us, um it was completely crippling kind of. Um, yeah. um we it's a thing that we don't want. To know what we shouldn't know, because it would stop us from actually living.
0: And it, but then it seems there's an almost an entire industry built around trying to trying to determine what people you know the you know online reputation managers and and things along those lines um, that you know and then you you have some interesting things in I think the next chapter about about the university, but you know what are students saying about you in online fora and. You know things along those lines
1: yeah and that's interesting it, it, here in in new zealand um we don't have some of those um you know like the rate is it rate my professor or yeah 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 kind of um public um uh uh evaluations of, of teaching or of other things as we have you know student evaluations and things like that but they're kind that's of right. internal to the university but yeah, but even so, even that the way that kind of manifests in the way that you might go into a classroom and teach students, you're constantly th- you're constantly thinking about how you'll be seen in the kind of public sphere and what it's not even just how you'll be seen, but what that says about you as a person, right? Um, yeah, and part of the the impetus for this the book is is that, that to show that this sense of futility that I kind of name as futility, this experience that we have. That we all experience in, in slightly different ways um is actually not a defect of our individual characters even though we all seem are kind of seem to feel like it is or encouraged to feel like it that it's, it's a defect of our individual characters it's actually integral to kind of the system in which we live in particularly with its kind of neoliberal mutation and and the kind of subject to subjective normalities that it um uh, enchanters.
0: So one of the terms that draws your attention is the idea of responsibility. Mm. Um, and, and so let's talk a little bit about what yeah. makes this you know, seemingly positive attribute a particularly troublesome one in a futilitarian age. And, and here I'm especially interested in your reflections on the university as a system.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, um, Tom. So, yeah, so the lot i mean, the logic of um, particularly personal responsibility is is so central to neoliberalism. Um, and many other scholars have uh, noted this um, point. You know, Wendy Brown talks about the process of responsabilization the passing of of systemic problems on onto the individual. Um, others have talked about you know. That neoliberalism is a kind of personal responsibility perceived um. But I, what I kind of look at here is how that that the the logic and the the rationality of personal responsibility cements the the futilitarian condition, the condition that I identify in in chapters one and two, because everything is then seen as a reflection of our 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 individual characters and our abilities or inabilities um to cope. Um and so I look in this chapter at the kind of political construction of, of personal responsibility, um, which um immediately or uh, um uh, initially um occurred under with the new rights the rise of you know of Reagan, um in the US Thatcher, uh, in the UK um and and in other places as well. But Reagan in his one kind of inaugural speech, I think it was the inaugural speech. Um, I think so. It, yeah, and he makes the point where he says, you know, if no one, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? And what we see here is this kind of center cent, centering of the individual as as the primary source of responsibility. And you basically, you must look after your own house if you're going to do anything about someone else's house. And I mean, that obviously builds into a kind of project of, of seeing the government as, as kind of antithetical to, to individual freedom and so on and so forth. That was really central to Reagan's politics. And then similar with Thatcher in the UK, you know, the very famous phrase that she came up with, there's no such thing as society, right. only individuals and their families. So this kind of dismantling of, of the idea of society And that we're all just kind of individuals look we and we must look after our own ourselves and our families um before we kind of think about any kind of social solidarity, anything like that. And I mean that's well been well documented and quite logical, I think, to the new right project. But what I spend a lot of time in this chapter is actually looking at the left-wing origins of of personal responsibility, and particularly with the rise of the kind of third-way left under Clinton and Blair. And then into Obama as well, um, and personal responsibility is really central to to Clinton's um, uh, politics, um, particularly the, the dismantling of, of the welfare state that occurs under under Clinton, um, especially the the personal the uh, the act that actually has a name is named Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation <laughs> Act. Um, and in here, and, and with his rhetoric around the, this dismantling of the welfare state, um, he constructs this idea of dependency as, as a kind of mortifying condition. To be dependent on the state is, is to lead a kind of less dignified life than, than others. Um, so it's a kind of um, a shaming of, of the idea of dependency. She, and in a sense that you are not as much, you're not as strong or resilient individual as other people. A Blair builds in Britain. Blair builds on the kind of Clinton, um, reimagining of responsibility, with blending kind of Thatcherism and and third way left. Um, some scholars have called this um, Blatcherism, which I always find quite a funny, <laughs> um, a funny uh, neologism, but um. But he, he links personal responsibility very much with this idea of opportunity. So he, he it's almost like a kind of carrot and stick or, or, or a contract with, with, the, with the public. He says, basically, those who take on greater personal responsibility will get more opportunities. So it's um, a kind of um, a, yeah, relationship between taking responsibility for your own situation will get you more opportunities. Whether that actually is the case is, is very debatable. But that's the logic behind Blair's thinking. And then Obama um, brings in a kind of new version of, of responsibility in respond, personal responsibility in response to the, the global financial crisis. So in his inaugural address in 2009, he, he calls for what he calls a new era of responsibility for American citizens. But this is for you know each individual American citizen must take greater responsibility for themselves. But at the same time, uh, it's kind of abs- absolving responsibility for those who actually caused the crisis, which is, you know, the financial sector and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I call this in this chapter, you know, the futilitarian spirit of capitalism. So where previous previous spirits of capitalism, you know, um, you know, from Max Weber's work or um, even uh, Luke Boltanski, Eve Chiapello, their book New Spirit of Capitalism, uh, those spirits of capitalism... At least promise some sort of reward for the hard work of taking, of the hard work of of of, um, capital accumulation. Whereas in Obama's speech, the kind of what's really lacking is a kind of sense that this that, um, American citizens will get anything for taking greater responsibility. In fact, he says that that this new irresponsibility is merely the price of citizenship. Um. So it's a kind of new um. Turn, which I think overlaps with um kind of post two thousand eight neoliberalism that that um you know some scholars have defined as a as punitive neoliberalism um Pierre Dardot Christian Laval the, the French kind of um thinkers um call that post two thousand eight neoliberalism a a war on the population um and you start to see the kind of the seeds of that in, in Obama's speech. Um. So overall, here what I'm kind of situating the the idea of personal responsibility is in with within the wider project of of progressive neoliberalism, what Nancy Fraser calls progressive neoliberalism, which is the kind of blending of neoliberal economics with a progressive politics of recognition. Um. So she argues, um, you know that Clinton talked the talk of diversity while walking the walk of Goldman Sachs, um. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a, a very a nice kind of turn of phrase, but but I think really taps into how the left actually complete the project that's begun by by um Reagan and Thatcher um and it, and and kind of blase terms the left kind of make neoliberalism cool.
0: So the this chapter contains, and I don't know if you have your a copy of the book in front of you, but on, on page ninety three, um. There's just what I regard as just an absolutely terrific um, kind of distillation here of, of some of the things you're talking about. I was wondering if you might wouldn't mind reading um, this paragraph.
1: Yeah. So which uh, is it? One, my ultimate point here. Yeah. yeah my ulti- my yeah.
0: ultimate point.
1: Yeah, I can read that. Yeah. So my ultimate point here is that the denigration of the notion of dependency in favor of personal responsibility undermines an ontological necessity. We are and always will be dependent on others for our existential safety. No amount of personal responsibility can escape this fact. Without any safeguards outside our individual selves, we cannot trust the external world will hold up its end of the bargain. There are endless events that can put us at risk, economic downturn, redundancy, pandemics, And the inability to guarantee our security outside of ourselves can only breed a culture of fear. We cannot know the inner workings of the market, the minds of our employers, or even our bodies, but we can hazard a guess, which can lead to crippling paranoia and hypochondria. This is the real opportunity of responsibility that new right and third-way politicians are so fond of encouraging, the opportunity to feel profoundly precarious in our own responsibility.
0: So, I have to tell you, Neil. I, I I read a lot of this kind of material uh, in my work, uh, and I don't know that I have ever uh, read a, a a more brilliant distillation of our contemporary condition than this paragraph.
1: Oh, that's very very kind. Thank um,
0: you. It, it's just uh, it just touches on so many things, um, and and is so eloquently expressed that um, well, it's worth the price of the book. Um, oh, thank and, thank if you, if only yeah, it's for enjoyed. that. Um, let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about semio futility. Um, so what do we mean by this term and and how do you find it
1: mobilized,
0: uh, in, in our culture today? Yeah.
1: Um, so this term kind of surprised me. I don't really know where it came from. And it was, um, really one of the first things I wrote that came part of the book, um, so the process that this chapter looks at these two simultaneous and interlinked processes that I define as semi semiofusility and symbolic indigestion. And and they um they they are an effect of of um the rise of kind of digital communication and, and the what I call the kind of hyper production of, of of language um in, in digital communication. Um others have called this, you know, um franco before priority call it talks about the idea of semi inflation which essentially <laughs> um that's so much so much language is is circulating um in the same way that under normal forms of inflation too much money or whatever is is circulating and it leads to the devaluation of 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 meaning essentially but there's too many words circulating therefore their meaning kind of has less value and semi-futility kind of builds on on this idea um so semi futility is essentially is the inability of language to to create an affect um to have meaning um so i use the example of the term the overuse of the term crisis for instance um in contemporary kind of uh media in particular and, um so when everything becomes described as crisis then crisis becomes the norm um and it, then it makes it extremely difficult to use the word crisis to elevate something beyond the norm. So the term crisis, um, the use of the term crisis stops to have meaning and this is, ceases to have meaning. And that's that's what I mean by semi-futility. So another good example um, is the use of the term climate emergency. So I live in mm. um, Dunedin in, in New Zealand in, in Otago and the, the city council here declared Dunedin a climate emergency. A couple of years ago and there's a kind of sense but that hasn't no one's really behaving as if it's an emergency <laughs> um yeah. and it's this this word emergency which has supposed to have this kind of affect supposed to to provoke us in a certain way to make us do something has actually lost that kind of affect it, it doesn't it's just a word amongst other words and and this is what i mean by this is an effect of semi-futility of the overproduction of language. Meaning becomes increasingly detached from its use, and and the and words be uh, meaning becomes kind of flattened out. Words cease to have this this effective capacity. Um, and this also bleeds into then the other process that I call semi-symbolic um indigestion, because meaning requires digestion, and and digestion requires time. You know it's a. So in, in the body, it's a kind of catabolic process, you know, breaking down these larger chunks of food in the body, but, but in communication language, into kind of smaller digest, digestible molecules. <coughs> I'm sorry. But when, but when language circulates constantly, and we're, we're at the same time, you know, producer and consumer of language, there's no no space or time to digest so it's just this kind of constant noise um this is a phenomenon that, that Jodie Dean calls you know talk without without response you know everyone is talking but no one is listening um and so this lack of listening this and the this inability to digest meaning and t- or digest language and turn it into meaning both fades the process of semi futility but also it, it undermines our capacity to build kind of common bond bonds because listening is really central to building kind of commonalities uh, between us. Um, but if no one is listening and everyone is just producing, there's there's really it, it, it actually um, it, it feeds and um, cements the kind of individualizing um, process that occurs on under neoliberalism.
0: There's a, a quote that I'm fond of reciting for my students uh, from Mark Twain, who says that the the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. And 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 reading this chapter, though, it, it made me think that, that perhaps uh, in an era of semi-futility, there's no more lightning.
1: Mm, that's a really nice way of, way of putting it, yeah.
0: Um, So you start the chapter on the politics of futility with an anecdote from a 2017 speech of Obama, where he provides us with the admonition that we get the politicians we deserve. Uh, So, um, yeah, that was really irritating. So what does this uh, almost tautological phrase tell us so much about politics in the utilitarian era?
1: Yeah, it was it was um, annoyed me as well when it, when I saw that because it really uh, solving any kind of responsibility and, and maybe even and
0: misunderstanding the, the the misunderstanding the election. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, at, I mean, at a fundamental level, you still come back to the fact that you know, in in a functioning democracy, Hillary Clinton would have been the president because yeah, exactly, she yeah,
1: she got more votes, yeah, millions, but it wasn't yeah. even <laughs> close. So, exactly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it was it was missed, missed the point on so many levels, but I think it was part maybe part of a project of deflecting a kind of responsibility on the part of himself or of the Democratic Party. Um but you're right, on a very fundamental level it really does does un, um not understand exactly how how democracy yeah. works. Um but more importantly, I think it's part of a um of a wider a uh, process of the de- depoliticization that occurs under under neoliberalism, um, and he seems to to I think in this in this um statement suggest that there's a kind of lack of political desire or political will amongst the kind of populace in in the U S at this time. And I make the point here that actually not not that I in any way I'm suggesting that you shouldn't vote, but to see not voting in that election as a lack of political desire actually misses the point that some people might have voted that not voting was actually an expression of political desire, to not have the choice between these two figures. Yeah. Um But also I think more importantly in this chapter, um I think the more personal question we could ask there is, you know. You know rather than we get the politicians we deserve, Is what how have we come to deserve this? Um and so this chapter, instead of looking at politics on a kind of macro level, which you know most political theorists will do, um, I, I delve into kind of micro political um actions as a way to think think about politics on a bigger level through these kind of micro actions. And so I look at that. Particularly actions that, that seem to be challenging the status quo, but actually reinforce these kind of neoliberal forms of of depoliticization, and the, the three key key micro political actions I look at are boycotting, um, yeah. this idea of voting with your dollar and, and anti nationalism, boycotting, um, is a kind of form of consumer activism, um, and it obviously evolves from the idea of boycotting, but where boycotting. Entailed, you know, deliberately not buying a product or not watching a certain TV show, or so on and so forth. By conflicting
0: a punishment on on yeah, someone who's
1: exactly yeah, but is that you deliberately buy a product that is in opposition to the the other products, um, and what it allows us to do is is to to both have the political but also consume at the same time. Um. um. And I find it
0: is a kind of virtue signaling on the part of capitalist it, enterprises.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You can see how, how certain capitalist enterprises and, and products then kind of, kind of manipulate um, the way consumers in, in a way to make it feel, to make the consumer feel like they are being political while at the same time they're, they are merely just, just kind of consuming um, the vote with your dollar. Um, phrase um I deliberately use because for for a couple of reasons and I'll, I'll explain that in a second it is used by this organization called green America which is quite you know a big um kind of uh uh what's it, environmental um mm-hmm. political kind of organization um and they have this uh toolkit essentially it's called vote with your dollar cool toolkit kit and the premise of it is that the decisions we make with our money with our credit cards reflect our value system. But really interestingly, they set they set this idea of voting with your dollar up against the idea of governmental politics. So they see governmental politics as getting in the way of our value system. And they, they see and very much they, they refer to Washington with this kind of very deep suspicion. And what I show here is that this this vote with your dollar, this this suspicion of governmental politics overlaps very much with many of the neoliberal thinkers and the way that they thought about governmental politics. And actually Ludwig von Mises, an um, kind of Austrian neoliberal thinker um, who's quite a big following um, and still does with many um, kind of neoliberals in the US, he actually had had a very similar idea to voting with your dollar um, where he said that the, the average man is both better informed and less corruptible um in the decisions he makes as a consumer than as a voter at political elections and this is the kind of the the this green america which we would you know envi- it's an environmental pol- political organization and yet it seems to be advocating positions that are extremely um uh the over that intimately with a kind of neoliberal view of of politics um This idea that we essentially by voting with our with our dollar, we are making a difference to the world and we can sidestep this this governmental politics that seems to get in the way of of our freedom. And then the final one is the anti-natalism, which is a kind of growing again, environmental politics around you know that people should stop having children. That's the best way to to prevent climate change. Um, And then here you see that kind of uh, I think. Uh, an example of you know Mark Fisher's point of, of capitalist realism where where capitalism and uh, inc- occupies a whole realm of the imaginable. and so it becomes easier to basically end the human race than than to end capitalism. Um, but also necessarily doesn't reflect the kind of uneven distribution of of the way that we pollute the world that it's actually the kind of big countries in the global north that are causing the most it's it's the carbon dependence of these societies that are causing the, the, the kind of problem towards the problem of climate change um but again we we reflect the responsibility for the climate crisis back on the individual so it's your choice if you choose to have children you're contributing to climate change um and so on and so forth so again it reflects again the, the, the process of responsabilization that occurs under neoliberalism that I, that I charted in, in chapter three of the book. And I, you even see it into some movements like, um, Extinction Rebellion. Um, uh, there was a example of, of someone carrying a sign, at an Extinction Rebellion protests in, in London that said socialism or extinction. And then this moves, you know, the XR UK, XR movement to come out and say, you know, we don't support the sign. We are not a political movement. and So on and so forth. So this idea that we can't, that, that, it's actually taking environmental politics away from a wider political project. Um, and this is, this is, um, it corresponds, it's not antithetical to neoliberalism. It actually corresponds with neoliberal forms of depoliticization. Um, and I think this is what I call therefore, the kind of politics of, of futility.
0: So your book came out, uh, kind of in the middle of uh, this pandemic um, that has continued to upend the lives of millions. Um, you know, just to, for context, my home state is looking at hospitalization rates that actually exceed uh, where they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so how do you see the, the relationship between the utilitarian condition and, um, and our attempts to grapple with this?
1: yeah and i think i i i' probably i probably speak from a kind of well i speak from a very privileged position in in global terms but also from from being in New zealand where yeah. we've really avoided the the to to this point we've avoided the the real devastating impact of of covid nineteen um and we are now you know omicron has in the last couple of days just made it into the community and we are as as even politicians and and experts can kind of say we are very unprepared for an omicron outbreak so we may well experience the same kind of things that, that you're experiencing as well in your home state um and this this chapter also poses on a kind of uh, uh writing level the difficulty of um mm-hmm. writing about something that's happening at that moment because by the time the book comes out the chapters are already Sure. Date, dated and especially with the pandemic the way that things have, have changed so so drastically throughout and the variants and so on and so forth so what i try to do in this chapter is is more rather than kind of make a comment on on the pandemic it is to try and locate some of the thinking particularly around the, of the pandemic response within this this wider theory of utilitarianism um and initially to do that is to show how utilitarian thinking has been really um central to many of the COVID responses. Um probably less so in New Zealand, which is perhaps why our response has been successful. And um, there's other reasons for that also, but but in other countries, particularly in the US, and the UK, parts of Europe, Australia, um, there's always there was very initially from the get-go there kind of cost-benefit analysis essentially about how many deaths are acceptable right. to protect the economy. Um, and I actually use the example of uh, the, the vice chancellor of Melbourne university writing a piece in Australian university, uh, Australian, Australian newspaper where he literally, he doesn't even disguise the kind of um, discussion. He, he basically makes the question, you know, how valuable is a 90 year old life compared <laughs> to a 23 year old life? And, that you know, this twenty three year old can contribute to the economy, can contribute to to building the economy in the aftermath of the pandemic. The ninety year old is only a drain in this this economy. Therefore, we need to weigh up, like whether we just let this thing go. Basically, a kind of yeah. cull of, of older people, and writing this in a kind of main uh, one of the kind of major uh, newspapers um in Australia is kind of sense of how central this are how um utilitarians have become really. Front and center to many of the responses to the pandemic. I also look at the first Cares Act that was brought in in the US under Trump, um, which Robert Brenner, the the kind of Marxist historian, called a, a billionaire coronavirus bonanza. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the way that um, bill, you know, and we see stories every single day of how the kind of billionaires, um, owners of you know big companies like Amazon or so on have have made a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, but I would now, uh, slightly hazard that that analysis of the Cares Act with the the second Cares Act was brought in under, um, Biden, which which again, I mean, there's certain problems with it, but certainly seems a bit more, um, uh, a, a more responsible form of of uh, kind of intervention in the economy that actually does, on some level, kind of protect, um uh people more more than so than, than the first one that came out and i also use another example from australia which is um the pandemic uh brought uh, pushed the government or allowed the government to um bring in a reform to the university system in australia um and particularly uh bring in what they call the jobs ready graduate program and this mm. basically entails um raising the cost of humanities courses so now in australia humanities papers or courses will cost you know up to three times as much as say a business degree or engineering um, uh, yeah engineering and and things like that essentially so that you trying again and that is part of a kind of wider political project to to dismantle the humanities um, um you know, as Will Davies has, has called in the U in the UK, um, he, he starts you know, the the humanities have become the enemy within, um, and so again, so what I'm trying to look at here is is that some how some of these responses to the pandemic actually are f- furthering a a a a, a, pol- a p- kind of political project that was already existing before the pandemic, and it's not an- allowed many governments to. Bring in policies that they would, that they that they would have liked to done, but the, the the pandemic has has given them the cover to do that. So, for instance, you know, dismantling humanities, uh, protecting kind of corporate interests, um, even the rise of things like telehealth. You know, this is neoliberals have been right. calling for you know telehealth for years because it it can help you know um, lower the lower cost. cost. Yeah, exactly. And now the pandemic. Um, you know, in the US, Australia, other places have brought in kind of telehealth um, legislation. Uh, and even Trump, you know, he said, he literally said that the rise of telehealth has been one of the, the best things that's happened out in the pandemic. So there are these little kind of offshoots that as we talk, you know, the, you know, the return of the state, um, uh, you know, all these kind of new interventionist policies, maybe this is the end of neoliberalism. There are little signs that's a kind of mutant, neoliberalism, and to borrow the phrase of Will Callison, Zachary Maffredi, is also emerging out of uh, the pandemic, um, um, something that I think we need to be really conscious of and to analyze as best we can.
0: So as we wrap up, um, I want to ask, or I'm going to start this by quoting from uh, the blurb from Wendy Brown. Um, Neil Vallely offers a rich tour of what he calls the futilitarian condition brought about by neoliberaliz- li- <laughs> sorry, neoliberalization. Systemic and ubiquitous, this condition deprives us of meaningful lo- lives and robs the world of a future. With an elegant and reader-friendly philosophical thoughtfulness and scores of examples, Valéli explains that gnawing feeling isn't what I'm doing in my job, ecological practices, ethical consumerism, and more, really futile. Becoming common, he argues, is our only way out. So let's talk about Becoming Common.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thank you to the um, to read, reading up there from Wendy Brown. I was just um, kind of blown away the fact that she, she even did that. Um, and a really lovely reading of the book. Um, yeah, so so this process of Becoming Common, I argue, is central to how we might confront um, futilitarianism. Um, so, so in doing so, I see futility... The concept of futility acting in a similar way to something like precarity, um, you know, and the way that precarity and the rise of the precariat, um, has has really um, helped find some some, uh, you know, very good kind of political, uh, movements around that around people who share this experience of precarity. My argument is that the idea of futility can encompass more people than the term precarity, because. Not all, many people wouldn't actually see themselves as precarious. Um, they might have a stable job or assets and so on and so forth, but they still might recognize this experience of futility in, in some way or, or form. So the process of becoming common is essentially a process of recognizing our, our shared um, but you know, differentiated experience of futility, since it, you know some people experience much more crippling examples of futil- futility than, than others. But at the same time, in recognizing that we share an experience of futility, this can lead to a process of of what I call, you know, becoming common to one another. And this becoming common has become so difficult for many of the reasons that I've talked about and we've talked about today, um, in uh, under neoliberalism because it it it's forcing us to see each other as as competitors, um. So we need something that that can actually, that we can share. And I think futility among and precarity and many other words can help in that process of becoming common, um, and so therefore I argue this idea of futility can become the basis of a new kind of collective political subject in the same way that precariat has, and I call this subject you know the futilitarian, um, can take I'm sure many other words and and whether that actually really is a term that that brings people together is debatable, but um, but basically. That 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 we need to start a process of becoming common, as Wendy Brown said, it's it's our only way out. Um, and perhaps futility can be a way, or can be a starting point of, of recognizing our shared experience of futility. This could be the starting point of building something that can actually confront that futility. And that's the kind of hope of the book. The aim of the book is to to lay the theoretical foundations for the building of that that common. A collective political subject
0: well let's hope um it, it's again it, it, it's a it's a wonderful text uh, i highly recommend it to people who are looking for a diagnosis of this present age and yeah uh, the, the idea of becoming common i think is uh is kind of the key if uh, if we're going to bounce back from all of this um neil valele thank you for your time today
1: Oh, thanks so much, Tom. It's great to ta- chat to you.
0: Um, once again, my guest today has been Neil Vallely, the author of Utilitarianism, Neoliberalism and the Production of Uselessness by Goldsmith Press. My name is Tom DeSena and you are listening to The New Books Network.